We're in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. And I'm not going to wait for you to find it. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 83 years old and Aaron was 80, pardon me, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they made their demands to Pharaoh. Just young guys still. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh will demand, show me a miracle. When he does this, say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did what the Lord had commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called his own wise men and sorcerers, and these Egyptian magicians did the same thing with their magic arts. They threw down their staffs, which also became serpents. But then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard. He still refused to listen, just as the Lord had predicted The first time I went to Israel, it was 1973, and two very exciting things happened while we were there. First of all, the Yom Kippur War broke out, and we were quickly hustled from Jerusalem to the coast, uh, awakened in the middle of the night and hurried down into a bomb shelter, um, and then flew out the next day to Italy. So that was one of the exciting things. The other, which for me personally was a little more exciting, Burt Lancaster was in our hotel. (laughs) And, um, you know, we'd bump into him in the hallway or in the restaurant. And um, he was there for uh, a movie. He was playing Moses in a made-for-TV miniseries. Shortly after um, that, uh, in fact in the same year I believe, I read an article where he was in London for the premiere of that miniseries and he was speaking to a group of fellow atheists and he, he told them, I can explain all of the miracles in Exodus meaning all of the plagues uh, that we, we get into today, uh, the manna, the parting of the Red Sea, he had a natural explanation for all of it. This kind of thinking is almost inevitable for us when we read Exodus, and it's because we've been so influenced by the... Um, the materialism, uh, the materialistic worldview of science and the materialism of our culture that we're very, very sure that all the physical things, all the substance of this life is real. We're not so sure about anything beyond here. What about spirit? What about God? And, and all that stuff. An old, an old Testament professor wrote From the 17th century and onward, the impact of modern science on the interpretation of the plagues has become increasingly prominent. 
Both liberals and conservatives associated the plagues with natural phenomena known from Egypt. Liberals used scientific explanations to remove from the biblical account as much of the miraculous as possible. Conservatives found in it support for the factuality of the biblical account. Okay. I'm not going to waste any more time with this unless this is meaningful to you, okay? Have you ever had that problem? Moses has, or Aaron has a staff, a rod. He throws it on the ground and it turns into a snake. And Pharaoh has his magicians do the same trick, or pardon me, do the same thing with their magic arts. And then Aaron's serpent eats up all their serpents. Do you have any problem with that at all? <laughs> Having actually happened. Okay, well, good, good. Some of us can't help asking, did that really happen? Is there any evidence, any historical evidence, that any of this ever happened? Are there any records in Egypt of these plagues coming in succession like this? Now, I'm not going to try to solve this for you if you have had those questions and concerns. I'll just give you my short version for now. I accept the scriptures as sacred, as inspired by God. And, and I do this, by the way, because of Jesus Christ, because I know him and he has entered my life. There have been times when I've encountered him, mostly at critical moments, so though I regret it hasn't been more often, I'm also thankful that it hasn't been more often because those critical moments were typically painful. But because of him, I trust the scriptures as being God's revelation. However they come to us, however they came about, he was behind it. And it's the story that God wants to tell me. This is the story God wants to tell you, the story of Scripture. It's the truth he wants to reveal. So we can come to know him through this information. I cannot shut off that critical part of my brain that says, huh, are you sure? At the same time, I can suspend judgment as I read. I can suspend those, the, that critical voice and just allow myself to absorb what is here. And in absorbing what is here, somehow God speaks to me. Last Wednesday night, someone quoted me a saying a long time ago that um, when you read anything, what you want to do is eat the meat and spit out the bones. I never said that. Okay, this person remembers me as having said that. I never said that. If anything, I'll say read with filters. No, read through filters. Filter out. Um, and 
that way you can read just about anything, you know, unless it's super boring. Um, so turn off those critical you know, faculties right now and just let the story speak to you. Albert Einstein said, if you want to raise intelligent children, read them fairy tales. So he could see, even in, in stories that we know are contrived, the, the stuff of what makes a per person think, reflect, uh, lean towards nobility, perhaps, and, uh, and developmentally because of it. Certainly, the scriptures can do that. that. That's why the Bible was one of the first of two textbooks that the United States ever adopted in the education of its children. It was understood as the psalmist said, the entrance of thy words bring light. They give understanding to the simple. So with that in mind, let's go to Egypt. The showdown begins. Um, the story of the plagues, and this is what we're stepping into today, is told in cycles. So there are specific themes, sometimes exact phrases, that are repeated from one cycle to the next. And some examples are, let my people go. God will say this, and Moses will say this, and it's, it's really the whole purpose of the plagues. Uh, another phrase that we hear is, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, um, and, and variations of that that I'll explain in a moment. Um, we're told again and again, Pharaoh refused to listen. And also, um, we read, especially in these first few plagues, the magicians did the same thing with their magic arts. God's repeated theme is, then they will know that I am Yahweh, or I will show you that I am Yahweh. So the plagues are going to illuminate something about God, illustrate who he is in action. There's also a repeated pattern in the first nine parables. There are ten parables in all. And the first nine have this pattern um, of three plus three plus three. First three parables, second three parables, three sets of three. Okay, does that make sense? I, I have to see this diagram. If I had a grease board right now, You'd hate me. Uh, but the first plague in each set, right, three sets of parables, first plague in each set, God tells Moses to meet Pharaoh in the morning. And twice, that's at the Nile. And, of course, Moses said, I'm not a morning person, God, but there you go, have it. Um, the, the second plague in each set, Moses appears before Pharaoh, and it doesn't specify morning. Presumably, it's at the palace or, or the king's court, and he appears before Pharaoh. And then the third plague in each set, there's no meeting with Pharaoh, and there's no warning. God just says, Moses, do this, and the next plague follows. So that's consistent then. Each plague begins in the same way, ends in the same, I mean, each of these three sets begin the same way, ends the same way, 
Same in the middle. All through these chapters, Pharaoh's heart plays a central role in the plot in, in moving it forward or what happens next. And sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart and sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. There are three different words, Hebrew words, for what's going on in Pharaoh's heart. Uh, one mean, means harden. Another one means to toughen or strengthen. And the third word means heavy. Heavy, the Hebrew word, is used in a variety of ways. Sometimes it speaks of a person's honor or glory. That's, that's heavy. Um, it's almost the way you know, we used to use it in slang. Heavy, <laughs> um, intense. Um, but events occur. I mean, the, the obvious meaning here is that events occur that strengthen Pharaoh's resolve, that make him stubborn, like more and more stubborn. When we're told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it sounds like Pharaoh doesn't have a choice. Like God is just moving arbitrarily in his heart and in sovereignty and exercising his authority. I'm going to make your heart hard. I don't care what you want or what you say about it. That's really not the case. And, um, well, for the Calvinist, yes, it is the case. Um, God chooses who's saved and who goes to hell, but um, it's really not the case here. But then the question is, how does God toughen Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is uh, the same as how do you develop a callus through friction. Uh, Friction and healing, friction and resistance. And so all God has to do is to, to say, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's immediate reaction is no. And now that we're in this contest, I'm going to keep saying no. And you can up the ante, I'll still say no. You can intensify the threats, I'll still say no. And so it doesn't matter what God does after that. Pharaoh's going to continue to say no. I'm going to tell you something else, and it's not very nice, but it's the truth. Um, Sometimes the truth is not nice. If you want to find someone to do something so dirty that you would not do it yourself, you can find that person. Because there are people out there who either have no conscience, have no remorse, have no empathy, and they can do some really terrible things. You put a person like that in power, and the terrible things that they do can affect a whole nation. So, um, in psychology, in in the the manual that psychologists use for diagnosing disorders, there's a section on personality (coughs) disorders. And there are three classes. And class B personality disorders include uh, the antisocial personality disorder. The antisocial is the main heading for the sociopathic and psychopathic disorders. There's the narcissistic, which shares things in common with the sociopathic. There's the borderline. 
and the histrionic. And the narcissist, the antisocial, the borderline are capable of doing horrible things. They're capable of doing horrible things to innocent people. They're capable of outrageous lies and slander. And many times a person's career has been ruined by a borderline, a person with borderline personality disorder. So if God needs an obstinate, stubborn, uh, sociopathic pharaoh, he can find one. Maybe he waited for this particular pharaoh to come along. Um, but he's got the personality, and all God has to do is speak to him, and he's going to have resistance, and Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. I, I heard a uh, pastor say one time, how is it that, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? He, he asked, well, how is it that the same sun that melts butter hardens clay? Israel sees what God's doing, and God is magnified in their eyes. Even when Pharaoh recognizes God's power, he still resists. He still fights. All right, so um, today we're going to follow the Egyptians, Egyptian, okay, uh, that's all, folks. We're, We're going to follow the Egyptian magicians as reference points in these stories, okay? Because that will be fun and interesting through what's, what is otherwise a difficult passage. They were Pharaoh's first line of defense. As soon as Aaron does this miracle, Pharaoh gets his, his magicians together, his, his wise counselors, his officials, and his magicians. And then they duplicate the miracle. And that's disconcerting when they can do the same thing that Aaron's just done, and there's more of them than there is of him. Has that ever bothered you when you got to that part? And they, they, with their magic, did the same thing. Their staffs became serpents. No, Terry? I'm so glad to hear that. You're just the person I went to talk to this morning. Um, What good is a miracle if they can duplicate them? In other words, God's whole plan is built on him enabling Moses and Aaron to perform miracles. Now, if Egypt's magicians can do the same thing, his whole plan falls apart, right? Possibly. Oh, you know the story already, so you know it doesn't. But, um, you know, uh, what good will miracles do? And what empowers their magic to get the same results? Is this a cheap imitation? Is it sleight of hand? Is it a knockoff miracle? Or is there something really sinister going on here? Were, were they really tapping the supernatural? And, and all we can say, well, I guess we can say a few things, but one of the things we can say is that Egypt had a whole lot of wisdom and understanding that we don't have today. It's been lost. And they knew things about medicine that we haven't recovered today. So um, we really don't know how this is happening. But already 
there's a hint at where this is headed. Um, this is the, the prelude to the plagues. And at first, it looks like equal contestants. God's team does this. Pharaoh's team does the same thing. They stand on equal footing. They both can do the same thing, same tricks or miracle. However, when Aaron's serpent swallows up their serpents, there's already a, a clue as to where this is going. There, he, he does trump. Pardon me. He does do better uh, than they did. Um, and the magicians will reach a point where they can no longer compete in this contest. All right, the first plague. God tells Moses, go meet Pharaoh in the morning down by the Nile, and in front of him, uh, hold the staff over the water of the Nile River, and it will be turned to blood. So first plague... The water in the Nile is turned to blood. The, the Nile is what made Egypt great, not to mention that it was their very life. It was so important to them that uh, they had a river god by the name of Hopi, and um, he controlled the flooding of the Nile, which it, he did, he, which it did regularly, bringing very rich silt uh, to the soil of Egypt necessary all of their farming. You know, when the Aswan Dam was built, a lot of that silt began to go other places than Egypt. And some of it was carried into the Mediterranean up into Israel. And the very astute Israelis figured out right away that this was fertile soil. And for a while, uh, more recent history, this changed, but even still in the 70s, um, Israel, with its famous Jaffa oranges, provided oranges to most of Europe. All right, so um, the Egyptians credited Hopi for that. But um, at first, now the magi uh, magicians of Egypt come and they also do the same thing. And at first, it looks like the battle is between um, Moses and Aaron and the magicians. It's the battle of the magicians, the battle of the miracle workers. But it's bigger than that. Later on in Exodus, uh, in chapter 18, Moses is going to be visited by his father-in-law, Jethro. And Moses is going to tell him everything that happened in Egypt. And of course, Jethro is, an, is eager to learn. He's a priest himself, most likely a polytheistic priest. And um, when Moses is telling him this, Jethro gets excited and he says, Praise the Lord, for he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued Israel from the powerful hand of Egypt. I know now that Yahweh is greater than all other gods because he rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. He hears the story and he says, wow, Yahweh, your God, is really above all the gods. 
Um, one woman wrote a book on God versus the gods of Egypt. And she goes through each plague and demonstrates how each plague was a personal attack on one of Egypt's gods. In other words, God goes to the pantheon of deities proving himself to be greater than each one of them by plaguing their particular domain. And so here it's the Nile River and it's God. Uh, but like I said, again, the, the Egyptian magicians used their magic and did the same thing. And we're told in uh, the end of chapter 8, verse 23, Pharaoh returned to his palace and put the whole thing out of his mind. Then all the Egyptians dug along the riverbank to find drinking water, for they couldn't drink the water from the Nile. And this went on for seven days. Um, the Pharaoh's lack of concern, it's like, I'm not going to take this seriously. I'm not going to worry about this. Um, I don't know what he was thinking. You know, I have well water uh, in my palace. I don't have to worry about this. We have stored water. I don't know. But his lack of concern is a contrast with his people scrounging for water now just to stay alive, you know, let alone uh, cook or bathe or anything else. And it's a sad trait of some of the world's power brokers that they're not concerned about the people who suffer for their decisions and actions. That they're, they're protected, and so they can send others into battle, and they're not so concerned about that because they know whatever else, they will be protected. And that just reminds me, um, and forgive me, I'm not making a connection here, but would you please pray um, over the next couple of months, and if you pray every day, this would be excellent, but would you please pray for the meeting that our president will have with North Korea's leader? That could be one of the most important moments in his, in his current administration, because North Korea wants to talk about um, ending their proliferation of nuclear arms, nuclear arms. They want to talk about some kind of agreement with the U.S. And, you know, when you have a crazy person like Kim Jong-un in power, to have a moment of opportunity like this is so important. And if this gets screwed up, well, you know, California is within, you know, firing range now. Um, you know, the heart of America is. So this is huge. Also, recently Putin's uh, claim that they're able now to send missiles to the United States that will get through all of our missile blocking technology and that should the United States engage in an, any aggression towards any of their allies, North Korea being one of them, that they would not fail to use that technology to punish America. Now, you know, I don't remember things being this volatile and this vocal since the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of nuclear weapons around the world now. So anyway, let's be in prayer for our president for wisdom and, and, uh, and a, a peaceful heart and a willingness to compromise uh, so that, well, like Paul said, so that we can continue to live peaceable and godly lives. All right, the second plague, a frog invasion. The frogs came up out of the Nile and into the land, and they were everywhere. Verse 6 of uh, chapter 8 says that they covered the whole land. However, once again, the magicians were able to do the same. And my question is, why would they want to produce more frogs? They're already on their pillows when they go to bed at night. They look in their oven, even at that dry space, you know, frogs jump out. Uh, why would they want to produce more frogs? Well, I think that these copycat miracles or plagues is a subtle message that it indicates the inferiority of their magic. In other words, all they could do was copy, and again, either it's a real copy or a sleight of hand, all they can do is copy what's already there but they can't block it from happening, and they can't reverse it once it's happened. I mean, if they had real powers, and, and see, these aren't creative powers. These are copy, copying abilities. If they had real powers, why don't they call or summon predators to come out of the Nile and devour the frogs, or Frenchmen, or people from Louisiana, <laughs> you know, whoever eats frogs and enjoys them. You know, um, uh, get them there to get rid of th this plague. But they, they don't have that kind of power. They don't have a creative power. <clears throat> For the first time, Pharaoh breaks, and he acknowledges Yahweh. Up until now, who is Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. I'm not going to do what he says. But, but there's a little break in his resistance now. And he says, Moses, please pray for me, that the frogs will go away. And Moses says, well, I'm going to give you the honor of deciding when they go away. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Well, what is this negotiation? Why does, why does Moses do this? The obvious answer is, pick a card, any card. If you pick the card, you have control as to which card is picked. Pharaoh, I'm letting you make this this decision as to when, and then that's when it's going to happen. You'll see it's not just a coincidence but that it's God. All right? Um, so I don't go along with the preacher that I heard one time, great Pentecostal preacher, who, who said what Pharaoh wanted was one more night with the frogs. And he hammered that point home. He just come, come back to one more night with the frogs. And there's the frogs of, of uh, addiction and the frogs of lust and the frogs of hate and the frogs of greed. And you want one more night. I'll come to God, but I want one more night with the frogs. <laughs> it's a good line, isn't it? It's, a, it's like, whoa, you know, uh, we were young enough to still be frightened by that kind of thing and not just see it as silly. But, um, okay, so... God is behind this. Pharaoh figures that out. The third plague is an invasion of gnats. 
uh, when you get the little gnats in, in, in your house, you know, around dead bananas or something, it's so hard to get rid of them, you know, when you get an infestation. That's what they have here. It's all over the place. And for the first time, the magicians try to duplicate this and they can't. And they go to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. Yeah, the finger, right. God has said, I'm going to bring my whole hand against, you know, so this is just think. Uh, and uh, what this is, is it's a recogni- recognition on their part that they're not fighting against humans. This is a direct confrontation with a deity. This is God acting here. This isn't a magic trick. This is not an illusion. This is real, and only God can take credit for this kind of thing. We can't do it. We can't help you. They tried to impress this realization on Pharaoh, but they failed at that too, and his heart remained hard. The fourth plague is an invasion of flies, the big brothers to the gnats. And um, when God has Moses tell Pharaoh what's about to happen, he adds an important comment in verse 23 of chapter 8. He says, I will make a clear distinction between my people and your people. All the flies will be buzzing around your people no fly will come near my people. In Australia, I saw people wearing T-shirts that on the front said, ain't no flies on me. And on the back were all these flies (laughs) imprinted. You know, uh, they stopped noticing. There were so many of them. But God makes this distinction. We'll um, just notice that for now. We'll come back to it some other time. Pharaoh tries to negotiate terms with Moses. Um, Well, uh, offer your sacrifices to your God here in Egypt. You don't have to go anywhere. And Moses said, no. Um, What we offer, or the way we offer, is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we start offering sacrifices, they'll kill us. We need to go out into the wilderness. And finally, Pharaoh uh, makes a concession. He says, okay, go, but... Do not go too far away. The magicians don't even show up for this round. They're they're not there. But we haven't seen the last of them. The fifth plague is an epidemic that attacks Egypt's livestock. And until now, uh, the plagues have been mostly annoying. Uh, You know, water not as plentiful. Uh, Those pesky gnats and, and flies... But with this plague, uh, it's no longer manageable. And it becomes physically harmful, and cattle begin to die. We see a step up in the plagues now and an intensification of them. And again, the magicians are absent for this plague. Then in the sixth plague, which as far as we'll go today, I mean, six plagues is enough for one day, don't you think? Um, (laughs) There's an epidemic that causes boils or some kind of swelling. And the magicians show up 
for this plague again. But this is the last that we'll see of them because um, I'm sorry um, in chapter 9 verse 11 even the magicians were unable to stand before Moses because the boils had broken out on them and all the Egyptians. So now the magicians themselves not only cannot duplicate this but now they are suffering uh, along with all the other Egyptians and we can say goodbye to them here. So if we follow the, the magicians through this and what have we discovered at this point? That though we were maybe a little disconcerted at the beginning, when they were able to turn their staves into serpents, here at the end, there's, they're suffering from the plagues and they're helpless and hopeless uh, to do anything about it. And it's apparent to us that God's infinite superiority over Egypt and Egypt's gods is going to win the day. All right? So I think now we can leave Egypt. We can come back to now, here and now, today. Um, but looking back at Moses, what do we see? Well, we see plagues. And the purpose of the plagues is not only Israel's liberation, but also a revelation that Yahweh is God. And if Egypt has a whole bunch of gods, they can know that Yahweh is greater than all their gods. God wants to be known. He wants to be known for who he is, especially to his people. He's going to teach Egypt also. He's going to teach all the nations. But he wants his people to know because they're the ones who are going to trust him. My people, God says. And they're able to say, Yahweh is my God, our God. In this first plague, water is turned to blood. And now I want to jump from Moses to Jesus. According to John in his gospel, Jesus' first miracle in Cana of Galilee was to turn water into wine. And there's a strong contrast between Moses, who turns water into blood, which is equal to death, blood outside the body, and turning water into wine, which is the joyful exuberance of life itself. That's how wine is used in scripture. And as a result of turning the water into wine, we're told, and, the, and his disciples believed in him. In other words, the miracle of water into wine had the same effect as the plagues. And you go through John's gospel and you see miraculous sign after miraculous sign having the effect of showing people who Jesus is, revealing God to them, and um, helping them to believe. In fact, towards the end of John's gospel, in the last verses of chapter 20, he'll say, Jesus did many other things in front of his disciples and performed many signs, but these I have recorded in order that you might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. 
A little delay there, huh? <laughs> Moses, through plagues, brings us this knowledge of God, and even Pharaoh believes, though he resists. Jesus, through miracles of healing and grace, reveals this knowledge of God. And people resist, but those who believe become the children of God. All those who are willing to receive him. Blood, death, condemnation, wine, the exuberance of life. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, the old way or the old ministry with laws etched in stone led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? The old way is turning water into blood. The new way is turning water into wine. Some of us were raised with Moses. And the water was always being turned to blood. There's always this, this mean edge at the end of our Sunday school lessons, of our reprimands from our parents, at the preaching of the preacher. It always ended with this, and you're doing this wrong, and you're very, very bad, and you can never have a decent thought about yourself because you have no right to. That's selfish, and instead of, instead of uh, self-affirming, you need to be self-loathing. And if it wasn't said explicitly like that, it was the implicit message, and our psyche heard it and embraced it, and now that's something we have to fight because of our feelings of worthlessness, of being unloved, unwanted by God. Water was turned to blood for us. And the sad thing is, this is the water of life. This is the life of God. This is the life of the Spirit. And whenever we got close to it, it was turned to blood for us. How wonderful to, to find in Jesus the liberation from that bondage in Egypt. And not by plagues. Okay, here's something to think about. The first plague was turning water to blood. The last plague was the death of the firstborn throughout all of Egypt. And the last act of Jesus' ministry is the death of God's only begotten Son, who does not require everyone to die for him. Instead, he dies for them. John says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Isn't that so beautiful? The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law is gravity. 
You know, Paul talks about being under the law. The law holds us down. Paul will say this in uh, Galatians chapter 3. Grace is anti-gravity. So you know when you've been exposed to the law, you're down. And you know when you've been exposed to grace, you're lifted up. And God's grace comes to us every day. God's grace is present every moment of every day. God's grace comes to us through each other. God's grace comes to us through sun shining, uh, brightening the leaves of trees, wind causing them to gently sway. It comes to the raindrops that refresh the earth and refresh our souls too because something's being washed away from the, the accumulation of all the dust of the last uh, week or two. And now Christians around the world and here are either turning water into blood or water into wine. And to turn water into wine is to live grace and to share grace. To give grace, the first thing that's necessary is to receive it yourself. Can you receive God's grace? Can you let him love you for no other reason than the fact that he loves you? You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove yourself in any way. Can you let God love you without you deflecting it, without judging yourself? I mean, it's, it's natural for us, some of us, to say, well, I'm not worthy of this, God. And I'm sure his re response is, well, you just don't understand. You just, no one is worthy. And, and you're no more unworthy than anyone else. If you can allow yourself to receive grace, say God is with me because he wants to be with me, and he finds the motive in himself, not in me, he doesn't look for me, for anything to motivate him to help me. He finds it in himself. God is going to show me his grace every day. You do that. And as you do that, let's continue to share grace with each other. Make sure that we're safe, a safe person for the other person. And that when they open up their heart, we don't respond immediately with advice as how they can straighten themselves out and be as good as we are. Um, we don't judge, but we listen and we respond in grace. Let that be our way of life. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord our God, who showed his infinite superiority over Egypt's gods, show to us the infinity of his love and his grace. May it surround us and lift us today and always. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.